Look with me, please, in Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> and we've been looking at, began our study of this division of the of Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi in verse 12 through verse 26. But this morning we'll just read verses 15 through 18 together. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set forth or set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again together. Father, Thank you for the privilege to open the Word of God this day. We pray that we might have discernment and hearts that are receptive to your truth. Lord, may you guard our very thoughts, and may it be as your Word declares that the very words of our mouth and the meditation that upon which we ponder within our hearts, our minds, be pleasing in your sight. For Lord, we are aware that your Word is precious, and we want to handle it reverently as we should. And so again, give us hearts to receive, eyes to see, ears to hear, and the minds to understand your truth that we may walk in the revealed Christ as we find him in his word and in this provision you have made on our behalf. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Two weeks ago, we examined Paul's statement in verse 5 concerning the fellowship of the gospel. And we discover within verses 7 through 11 that Paul identified the meaning of the fellowship of the gospel by identifying the work that God is performing within those who are in the fellowship of the gospel. At the onset of this study Paul, of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, I explained to you the overarching theme of the epistle in which Paul declared desire for the Philippian believers to recognize and to follow after those things which are excellent. In Philippians 1, 9 through 11, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. The implication of Paul's statement, as I've explained over the past few weeks, approve things that are excellent, it means to regard something as genuine or worthy based on testing or, or, or on it being proven. And so Paul's thesis for this entire epistle is set forth in verses 9 through 11 of the first chapter. As I've shared with you and as we've studied through many books thus far, we have seen, especially in the epistles, that Paul will provide his thesis statement in the first chapter more often than not, and we find that that sets the tone of the entire epistle, why he is writing and what he's going to emphasize. I also have pointed out the clearest example within this epistle in which Paul emphasizes the truth of valuing and pursuing that which is excellent or superior. We find this example again in Paul's declaration in the third chapter division of this epistle, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, Paul says, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but lost for the excellency, which means superior in value or to be of surpassing 
or exceptional value. So he says, I count all things but loss for the excellency, for the superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And so Paul is saying that everything apart from knowing Jesus Christ, and let me qualify this again for you, this is not talking about knowing Jesus in salvation, being born again at that moment, though that's the beginning, that's the foundation. Paul is already a believer, Paul is already an apostle, Paul is already a follower of Christ, and he is saying, all things that I once considered to be superior, now I see them all as being inferior to the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. To know Christ in his fullness, to know Christ in the riches and depths of the truth of who he is and how God has provided him for us. All that God has made him to be for us and to us, as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul explains, verses 29 through 31. Paul is saying in these verses that to know Christ, to follow after him, to pursue him, to win Christ is superior to everything else. And so he's saying, I would as well desire that you, as this body of Philippian believers, that you understand and that you approve those things which are excellent, that you regard what is valuable as valuable, that you regard that which is superior as being superior, that you count all other things inferior to knowing Jesus, to following after him, to loving him, to submitting to him, to worshiping him, which is our submission to him. He's saying this is superior to all other things. And my desire and prayer for you, Paul says, is that you might understand this, that you might live accordingly to these truths. It is through the fellowship of the gospel we have discovered that God first is providing unity in his church through the fellowship of the gospel. In verse 7 we are told, God is providing godly affection within his church through the fellowship of the gospel. Verse 8, God is cultivating spiritual growth in his church through the fellowship of the gospel. Verses 9 and 10. And God is producing spiritual fruit in his church through the fellowship of the gospel as declared in verse 11. Last week we began our examination of the next division of this first chapter of this epistle in which Paul explains the importance of the furtherance of the gospel. He first speaks of the fellowship of the gospel and what that means and what God is accomplishing through that. And remember, fellowship of the gospel, fellowship means participation. So we are partners in the gospel. But And we're going to look into this a little more so this morning. But the gospel is not merely salvation alone. When I say merely, what I mean is that it's much deeper and richer than only that Jesus died for you, get saved. The gospel is the good news, and that is the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we are believers in Christ, we discover that there is so much more to him and so much more that God has done for us in Jesus than only delivering us from his wrath. He has reconciled to us to himself. He has redeemed us, purchased us. He is, he is sanctifying us and positionally already sanctified us. We will be glorified in and because of Christ. And so there's so much more to who he is than just Savior alone. Though he is Savior, and we do not marginalize that. I, I, let me refer back to the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 6, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, makes a statement that, let us, uh, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Now, principles here is the primary truths. And what he's saying is that we are to not only remain in the foundational truth of Christ and what he's done, but we are to go on to perfection. And the word perfection there means maturity. So Paul is saying, or the writer of Hebrews, I keep saying Paul, but the writer of Hebrews is saying that, that we are to 
move beyond and grow beyond just the moment of our salvation. We'll look more into that in a moment as well, but be mindful of these things. That it's not that we ever get beyond or over, it's not we ever get over the work of Christ on the cross. This is our life. This is our source of life. Jesus did die. He was buried. He did rise and for our salvation, our justification, and we embrace this truth. We love this truth. But Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, let us move beyond that. We don't get over it, but let us move beyond that unto maturity and understanding that this is, there's much more to this salvation than I am not going to perish. There's so much more to this. And Paul is saying throughout his epistles here that we are to acknowledge this, as he says in Philippians, that we are to uh, be aware and regard that which is superior as superior, which also will cause us to see that which is inferior as inferior. And so he's saying acknowledge these truths and live therein. Now Paul deals with the furtherance of the gospel. In verse 12, I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. The noun furtherance means progress. And the fellowship shared in the gospel will result in the furtherance or the progress of the gospel. We observe from the book of Acts, which is the gospel proclaimed while Romans is the gospel explained. And we've seen in the book of Acts that in the face of every opposition, the gospel or God's word multiplied, grew, and prevailed. In Acts 6-7 we're told, and the word of God increased. In Acts 8-4, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. In Acts 12-24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Acts 19.20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Throughout the book of Acts, the gospel is being proclaimed. And in the face of all the opposition that was coming against Christianity in its infant stages, which was coming against the gospel and the church, we find that the word of God continued to prevail. It continued to grow. It continued to multiply. And so, and why is that? Because they were in fellowship. They were participants in the gospel, Not meaning they set forth just to do a work. No, they had been born again, and now they were following after Christ. And this church, this early church, understood what it meant to rejoice in salvation. They understood what it meant to rejoice in proclaiming the gospel and also to suffer for the cause of Christ and the gospel. And they are partners together in the gospel, which produced a furtherance of the gospel. Had these believers in the book of Acts not been in the fellowship of the gospel, then the gospel would not have been furthered through them as it was. They understood that this is bigger than us. They understood this is more important than us. They understood that Christ means more to us than our relationships with our family, than our relationships in our society, than our positions in society, and they were willing to count all things but loss inferior to knowing Jesus. Paul not only spoke of the gospel's progress, but also made a reference to the means by which the Lord had progressed the gospel when he said the things which happened unto me in verse 12. Paul then continued in verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. In his second epistle to Timothy, Paul declared in 2 Timothy 2.9, we saw last week, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. And Paul is saying here not that he had done evil. He's saying they are treating me as though I've done wrong or I'm a criminal when all I'm doing is proclaiming the gospel. But what Paul is saying is despite the fact that I am bound, he is saying despite the fact that I'm in bonds, despite the fact that I have limitations, Paul declared adamantly that the word of God was not limited. 
Paul continues to explain how his bonds have furthered the gospel in verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The sufferings which Paul encountered or endured did not hinder others either. Not only did it not hinder the work God was doing in and through Paul, but it also was used by God to further the gospel in despite the fact that Paul is suffering for the gospel. So others were emboldened, Paul says. They were bold to propagate the gospel, and it wasn't just, I say despite, it wasn't just despite his bonds, but it was because of his bonds. God was using his suffering and his bondage and his limitation to further the gospel beyond that which even Paul could have done had he been freed. So before we continue our dig into the following verses of this epistle, this morning we will spend our time actually considering verses 15 through 18 as we've read them in a general sense. And what I mean by that is there's much to dig out of this, but we need to answer some questions first of all. Before we begin next week, Lord willing, to get into this study further, I believe we need to step back for a moment, really observe what Paul is saying overall in an overview manner, and then further dig into the passage. But some questions must be answered. It is important that we have a clear understanding of the meaning of that which Paul states in this passage. It is imperative that we consider verse 18 which we've read this morning, in view of all Paul is declaring in relation to the furtherance of the gospel and his defense of the gospel, which he declared in verse 17, when he stated this, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. When referring to Paul's statement in verse 18, he states, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. When, uh, when reading this verse, we must understand what Paul is saying and what he is not saying. Notice in verse 17, he says that it is known that I am set for the defense of the gospel. But then in verse 18, he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and therein do rejoice, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Many today seem to misunderstand Paul's statement in this verse. Paul is not saying that he rejoices as long as someone preaches about Jesus or as long as someone speaks of Jesus, but rather Paul is saying that he rejoices as long as the same gospel he is preaching is preached, even if the motive for doing so is not pure or right. Here's the distinction we must understand. Paul is not saying, oh, I rejoice even if it's an impure gospel that is preached. I rejoice even if it's a perversion of Christ that is preached. No, Paul is not saying that at all. Paul is saying, I rejoice if Christ is truly proclaimed, even if the motives for those doing so are impure. He says what they think or how they are is really not what's important. The message is what's important. So Paul is not saying propagate as long as there's some form of Jesus being proclaimed or preached. Oh, I rejoice. And that's how this verse, I'm afraid, has been taken today. It's as though people find no reason for distinction and separation concerning the truth of the gospel. I find it ironic that churches are willing to separate over secondary and tertiary issues, and yet they're not willing to make drawn lines in the sand, if so to speak, concerning the truth and purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How odd it is, how strange it is. So we need to understand this truth of what Paul is saying. So in other words, Paul rejoiced when Christ was preached as he would preach Christ, despite the motive for doing so. However, Paul did not say that he rejoiced if some version of Jesus was preached or someone mentioned Jesus or preached about Jesus. 
Paul warned against such error in his epistle to the churches of Galatia when he rebuked them for turning to another gospel, which he further explained is not another gospel at all, but rather is a perversion of the true gospel. Paul further declared that if anyone preached a perversion of the gospel of Christ, which he proclaimed, let them be cursed. In Galatians 1, 6-9, Paul says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I now say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Many people often refer to the gospel as defined by Paul in Corinthians, as though Paul's summarization of the gospel is the complete or full description of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Emptily, he's saying. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So many people view this brief summarization of Paul concerning the gospel as this is the entirety of the gospel, and it's not. This is, of course, our salvation. Jesus died, He was buried, he rose again, and we are saved through this truth. But this does not fully define the gospel, and we must understand that. And so very few, it seems today, would consider that Paul had already explained in 1 Corinthians the truth that he was rebuking the Corinthians, and he declared that he could only preach Jesus crucified due to their spiritual immaturity and their inability to stomach or digest the meat and the truth or the deeper spiritual truths of Christ and his salvation. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul says, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, while it is true, of course, that this would as well include the truth that Paul only preached Jesus, we know that, but that's not what Paul is saying. Where did Paul ever preach anything or anyone other than Jesus? He didn't. And so Paul's not saying, oh, to you, I only preach Jesus. He is saying the emphasis is not, I only preach Jesus. The emphasis is, I determined to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the key here. Paul is saying, you could not stomach anything more than the summarization of salvation, the summarization of the gospel, because of your spiritual immaturity. If you don't believe that, go to the next chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul explains chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 3, 1 and 2. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. So Paul is saying, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus and him crucified. I can only give you the foundational truths of salvation and the gospel because you cannot stomach, you cannot digest, you cannot understand because of your spiritual immaturity the truths of the gospel. So while it is true that the gospel is declared in a nutshell in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, 
Paul's summarization of the gospel is provided to the Corinthians due to the spiritual immaturity of the believers in Corinth. So the whole reason we have, this is the gospel I preached unto you. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. It's not to totally define the entirety of the gospel. Paul had to be that simple with the Corinthians because they were so spiritually immature that they could not receive more than this truth. Again, I remind you, as I often did during our study of 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, compare 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3 to Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. And when you make that comparison, it becomes very clear that the church at Ephesus was considerably more spiritually mature than the Corinthian church. Look at the manner Paul addresses them. Look at what he's having to deal with. Look at the, look at the truths in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 as we've studied for months and compared to 1 Corinthians, which we also studied for months, some years back now. And it's quite amazing to see the comparison of these two books. Nonetheless, here's what's so wonderful. Nonetheless, Paul preached the same gospel to the, both the Corinthians and the Ephesians. Yet he was able to speak of the gospel in much greater depth with the church at Ephesus than he was the church at Corinth. So while the gospel in a nutshell for those who are unable to digest spiritual meat is one, Jesus died, two, Jesus was buried, and three, Jesus rose from the dead, the truth of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is much richer, much fuller, much deeper than the summarization which Paul provided to the spiritually immature Corinthian church. In January of 2020, we began our study of the book of Galatians. And in relation to Paul's statement to the church at Philippi, I want us to again consider and revisit these truths. Since Paul in this letter to the Philippians specifically speaks of the gospel in an exclusive manner, meaning it is not a gospel, neither is a version of the gospel or any gospel, but Paul specifically declares the gospel. The question then which must be answered is this. What is the gospel? Now, I've given you the summarization as Paul has provided it in 1 Corinthians, but that is to a spiritually immature church that cannot receive spiritual meat. And yet you look at Ephesians and you see the depths and truths of the gospel as Paul declares it in chapters 1 through 3. So what is the gospel? What defines the gospel? Paul writes definitively of the gospel within this first chapter of this epistle to the Philippians. Within the first chapter, Paul refers to in verse 5, fellowship in the gospel. In verse 7, defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 12, furtherance of the gospel. Verse 17, defense of the gospel. Verse 25, the first part, the gospel of Christ. 25, the latter part, the faith of the gospel. In Galatians, Paul expressed his disappointment that the Galatians had received another gospel. Again, Galatians 1.6. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now, if we are to understand what another gospel is, as Paul declares it, we must first understand what defines the gospel. And within this verse in Galatians, Paul provides a summarization as an answer when he says 
Ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. The work of the gospel is God calling us into the grace of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the love of Christ, the mercy of Christ. We are called into this unmerited favor and kindness of God through the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a need to understand what the gospel is if we, are, if we are to understand what it is not. So again, before we can define what another gospel is, we need to define what the gospel is. The word gospel originates from the Greek word evangelion, which in Latin was a very similar word, evangelium. And this, of course, is where we get the term, as you've heard it theologically before, proto-evangelium, referring to Genesis 3.15. The word proto-evangelium was eventually translated into the old English word God spell. And this, of course, is where our modern-day English word gospel is formed. The word God means good, and the word spell means story or news. It's S-P-E-L, not double L. Hence, the word gospel means good news. And the word proto means first, and evangelium means good news. And this is why we refer to Genesis 3.15 as the Proto-Evangelium. In Genesis 3.15, we find the first mention of the good news in all of Scripture, or the Gospel. And as God pronounced judgment upon sin, He also announced the promise of the Redeemer who would crush Satan. In Genesis 3.15, He says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This was prophetic of Christ defeating Satan. While some would argue as to the presence of the gospel in the Old Testament, it is in Galatians that Paul explains that the gospel or the good news was preached to Abraham. And this good news was not simply a general reference to something good or some news that Abraham would perceive as being good, but it is specifically and directly in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ and the redemption that he would provide for both Jew and Gentile alike. So when you get to Genesis chapter, or Galatians, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 8 through 14, this is what Paul writes. And the scripture saying that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham. So here's the good news. Now look, this is often, again, misunderstood. People think, oh, here's the good news. He says, and these shall nations be blessed. As though God is saying to Abraham, oh, here's good news, Abraham. I'm going to use you to be a blessing to many nations. But really, read the previous statement. Here's what all of this good news is in relation to. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith. The Jews are saved by faith, and these prepositions do make a difference, by the way. There's implications made in Paul's statement in Romans when he speaks of the the Jews being saved by faith and the Gentiles being saved through faith. Notice again. God would justify the heathen through faith. Here Paul is saying, God had foretold to Abraham, in thee shall all nations be blessed, foretelling that he had an eternal purpose in which he would make a people who were not a people his people, as the prophets prophesied throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. And those people who were not a people who become his people, that's our people. (laughs) Those are the Gentiles. And so he's saying, this is the good news that was preached before unto Abraham, in these shall nations be blessed. But he doesn't leave that for conjecture. He doesn't leave that for us to say, well, I think this is what Paul's talking about. But look at what he says. Verse 9 of Galatians 3. So then, 
They which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Again, this statement, the just shall live by faith. Let me explain it to you quickly. Just equals justified. Paul is saying those who've been justified shall live by faith. He doesn't say the justified should live by faith. He didn't say the justified will probably live by faith. The implication of the statement has nothing to do with us performing. The implication of the truth of the statement is that the just, the very source of life for those who've been justified is faith. And that's what Paul is saying here. He goes on to say, verse 12, And the law is not a faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14, that or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Who's that? The Gentiles. So the gospel was that God was going to, had an, has an eternal purpose. Ephesians chapter 3 tells us plainly that God had an eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus. And this eternal purpose of God in relation to the Gentiles is that God had already determined that he was going to redeem a people, the Gentiles who were not a people, that's us. And this is good news. And the good news beforehand preached to Abraham was not just some good news for Abraham, but back in Genesis, and God declared in Genesis 12, 3, that he was going to bless all families of the earth through Abraham. He's not saying, oh, the Jewish nation is going to be a blessing to all people. He's saying, Jesus, who is the seed, is going to come out of you, and he is going to redeem Gentiles and Jews. And my, listen, this is good news, <laughs> And this goes beyond what we would consider to be good news alone. This good news is superior. It is excellent above all other news in its goodness. It is because of these previously stated truths that Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So Paul previously explained the gospel is a message of grace which provides us peace with God and it delivers us from sin from religious bondage, and what's more, it is, that it is through the gospel that we are made participants and partakers in the glory of God and in the gospel. When Galatians 1.6, the verb marvel that is used here, it means to wonder, to be astonished. So the question I would ask is, why was Paul so astonished in chapter 1, verse 6 of Galatians? Paul understood the truth of the gospel. He understood what it meant to live in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The churches of Galatia were primarily Gentile churches. And here he is saying to these people, look at what God has done eternally. He purposed that he would make you a people. He told Abraham, the father of the faithful, he told Abraham back when he called him out that he was going to bless all families, all nations of the earth, through his seed, which is Jesus Christ. And God has done this for you. And then he says, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you would so quickly turn away in desertion. This is an important truth within Paul's statement. The Galatians had not simply believed another perspective or been swayed to a different denomination, but they had turned away from the Lord. They had deserted him. Look at verse 6 again of Galatians. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from 
him. It's not even from the gospel itself. It is from him who called you into this grace of Christ. You're removed from him unto another gospel. By the way, I think that makes it clear too that you cannot separate Christ from the gospel. And you cannot separate the gospel from Christ. Which means all the good news of Jesus is the gospel, not just Paul's summarization. Every time I get up and proclaim the word of God to you, I am proclaiming the gospel as long as I am being faithful to the revealed Christ within the word of God. I don't have to tell you every time Jesus died for you, Jesus rose again, he was buried and rose again so you can be saved. No, I'm declaring you the truths and depths and riches of this Jesus who did that. The summarization is he did this. Now let's know him. Paul says, I I, I count all things but loss. All things are inferior to the excellency, to the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. This excels above everything else. That's what Paul is saying in chapter 3 of verse 10. Philippians, you know the verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And there's so much again to unpack in that one verse, as we've said many times. So this brings us to the second question. We understand what the gospel is then. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Not merely, or not only, I should say, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again. That's the summarization. But that is the summarization for a people who could not spiritually receive anything more than that. So this brings us to the second question. And we must consider, what is another gospel then? Galatians 1, 6, and 7, we read that again. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So what defines another gospel? What is it that makes another gospel another gospel? This is much more than simple disagreements, again, on secondary or tertiary issues or beliefs. Just as we discovered the definition of the gospel within Paul's epistle to the churches of Galatia, we also find the definition of another gospel within this same epistle. Another gospel is anything that turns us away from him who has called us into the grace of Jesus Christ. It is important to recognize that the very things which these Judaizers were guilty of propagating, which Paul called another gospel, was not something worldly or wicked in and of itself. This is further explained in Galatians 1.7 when Paul says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So another gospel is not necessarily an entirely different belief system, but it can simply be a distortion or perversion of the true gospel, of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, as Paul emphasizes through the book of Galatians. Of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, as Paul emphasizes in the book of Colossians. The provision of Jesus Christ, as Paul emphasizes in the book of Ephesians. <laughs> and now the excellency of Jesus Christ, as Paul declares in the book of Philippians. So Paul is showing us here anything that detracts us from who Jesus is, his preeminence, his excellency, his, God's provision in him, and his preeminence. Anything that takes our attention off of him and who he is and what God has done through him, is a perversion of the gospel. It's a perversion of the truth. Again, to exemplify this, the Judaizers in Galatia 
were not telling these Galatians to not trust Jesus, but they were telling them they needed Jesus plus circumcision. Now, who had told God is the one who commanded Abraham concerning circumcision? This was something God gave in the Old Testament to Abraham. But we know in the New Testament, as Paul declares, circumcision is not of the flesh, it's of the heart. And that God does not dwell in temples made with men's hands, but he dwells in us. We are the temple of God as the people of God. And so that outward circumcision had nothing to do with salvation. It was a foreshadowing of the circumcision of the heart, in which God would cut away the sin and the flesh of the heart, if you will, the mind, in giving us the mind of Christ and making us new in Christ. And so anything that detracts from that is another gospel. It's a perversion of the true. In other words, it's good to believe in Jesus, they said, but you still need your religious works to complete you. That's what the Judaizers were telling the churches of Galatia. And by the way, many today in American churches have fallen prey to the same deception. Oh, and again, let me say it to you like this, as I said through the book of Galatians many times. Hopefully none of you here would say today, I believe that you know, my works help add to my salvation, right? Hopefully you are fully aware that it is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. But do you know how many people who actually are believers in Christ and others who profess to be believers in Christ, they claim to trust in Christ and his sufficiency by, through faith and grace alone in Christ alone to be saved, and yet then they practice a work sanctification. As though I am adding to my holiness because of something I do. No, those who do righteous are righteous. It's not they are righteous because they do righteously. It's they do righteously because they are righteous. We are holy because of Christ. If you don't believe that, wake up tomorrow and do your best to live holy and see how acceptable that is before God. You're only made accepted in the blood, Ephesians 1. And so we have to be aware of this truth. Paul warned against any teaching that pointed away from Christ, Colossians 2, 8 through 12. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, human understanding and wisdom in contrast to divine wisdom, false belief systems, and vain deceit, empty and erroneous views, after the tradition of men, man's teaching and instruction, after the rudiments of the world, basic principles undermining truth, and not after Christ. For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. You're not complete in your efforts. You're not complete in your additions of your works. You're not complete in your church attendance. You're not complete in your church membership. You are complete in Jesus. Case closed. Paul's saying that's it. We are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and put off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here Paul is going back to that truth. That other circumcision of Abraham was a foreshadowing of the true, which is the work of Christ separating the ungodliness of our inherent sinful nature indwelling us with his spirit. Buried with him, verse 12, Paul goes on to say in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Everything I just shared with you is the gospel 
this is the good news of who Jesus is, of what God has done. And there's so much more. I'm by no means exhausting the truth of Christ. I said recently, actually to someone who's here, I said recently, I have no time to preach anything other than Jesus because Jesus cannot be exhausted throughout the Scriptures. How could I ever run out of preaching Jesus? So Paul's warning to beware of a perverted gospel which is anything which takes your focus away from Christ and persuades you to trust in your efforts, your works, your religion, your church membership, your fellowship with others. Look, none of that is that in which we are made complete. We are complete in the person of Jesus Christ alone. From Paul's teaching in his epistles to the Corinthian church, his epistles to the other churches of Galatia, we understand the meaning of Paul's statement in his epistle to the Philippians when he wrote in Philippians 1, 15 through 18 again. Let's go back. And again, this is just an overview leading us into these verses. Lord willing, next week we will begin in verse 15, picking this up. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. That's motive. Some also of goodwill. That's motive. The one preach Christ of contention. Motive. Not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Motive. But the other of love, motive, knowing that I am set forth or set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, motive he's speaking of here, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Here's what Paul is saying Christ is the same Christ. The message of the gospel is the same gospel. He's not talking about an alteration to the gospel. He's not talking about a perversion of the gospel. He's talking about whether the motive is pure or impure. It makes no difference. I rejoice because the pure message of Christ is preached. So when you hear a perversion of the gospel, you should not rejoice in that. Oh, but they're preaching Jesus. No, they're not. As soon as they detract from who Jesus is, they are no longer proclaiming the gospel. That is a perversion, and we don't rejoice in that. We're not talking about secondary and tertiary issues again. We're not talking, oh, we don't agree on this, or we don't know about this. No, we're talking about turning the focus away from Jesus to us or to someone else. So Paul is not endorsing the preaching of a perversion of the gospel or a watered-down version of the gospel of Christ, but rather is stating that if one is proclaiming Jesus, not preaching about Jesus or their version of Jesus in the gospel... But if one is proclaiming Jesus and his gospel, as Scripture declares Jesus and his gospel to be, then Paul says, I rejoice. In other words, Paul does not rejoice in the preaching of an impure gospel of Christ. But he did rejoice in the preaching of the pure gospel of Christ, even if the motives for doing so were impure. And notice Paul even says, even if the motives of those who are truly proclaiming the gospel of Christ are a detriment to me, even if they're doing it, to hurt me, even if they're doing it to irritate or frustrate me. No matter, he says, I gladly receive that if I know that the purity of the gospel is being proclaimed. The message must remain pure, even if the motives of the men are not. Anything less is not something in which we should or can rejoice. We rejoice if and when Christ and his gospel are preached. But there are no variations of Jesus and his gospel. We must understand this. It is not a gospel. It's not any gospel. I showed you already in Philippians 1 where Paul says, the gospel, the gospel, 
the gospel. And the is the only definite article in English grammar. You have a and an, which are indefinite articles, but can, which can mean a person, a chair, a car, a gospel. And then you have the, the definite article in English, which is saying the one and only gospel. There are no variations of Jesus or his gospel. Paul defended the gospel and rejoiced the gospel he defended. One more time, Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. I don't rejoice because men stand up and drop, name drop Jesus. I don't. But I rejoice whenever men are telling others, look and rest, look to Jesus and rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. For this is the good news. God has made provision for us in Christ, and it's not only that we don't have to burn for eternity and perish but he has made a provision in which he has expressed to us the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He has revealed his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. He has revealed his truth in the person of Jesus Christ. He has demonstrated and manifested his love in the person and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus is more than just a ticket out of condemnation. And there is so much more to the gospel than just the summarization of the gospel as declared by Paul in 1 Corinthians. Let us, let us, because we are these Gentiles, we are this people that had, who, who, had, who were not a people, who are now become the people of God through redemption in Christ. Let us put away all inferior things that are nonsense that we might embrace the superiority of knowing Jesus in his fullness. Which, by the way, we will never get there in this life or eternity. God has revealed himself to us as he has chosen to reveal himself to man in his word and in the person of his son. But hear me, you will never know all there is to know of who God is. There's a whole eternity that preceded us (laughs) in which God has always been. So even if we were able to comprehend from the moment we step into eternity, from that point forward in eternity, who God is, there's a whole eternity that preceded that in which God has always been. How are we going to ever comprehend Him? But aren't you glad that even though we may be limited in our comprehension as we are, that God has allowed us to continue a pursuit to know Him, and what a joy there is in doing so.